Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. There are some that think that this is a reference to the future and a reference to the Lord himself. And the hard thing sometimes about the prophecies is they they go from the the present moment when suddenly you're catapulted out hundreds or maybe even thousands of years. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on the book of Micah. Now, here's Pastor Brian. The book of Micah. Let me read verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth. In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So those, those names are important because they give us the time frame for the ministry of Micah. And Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. So the same list of kings you find in Isaiah's prophecy. And, and if you remember, we studied Isaiah's quite a while ago now, but um, you know, maybe as you've read through it, there's the whole incident that happens there. Well, gosh, you have Ahaz's uh, situation with him and Uzziah, and um, Uzziah dies and Isaiah sees the Lord. But Hezekiah, uh, he plays a, a pretty significant role in Isaiah's prophecy. And so Micah is there prophesying at the same time, and his vision is regarding Judah or Jerusalem and also Samaria. So this, this reminds us that the, the northern kingdom that will be carried into captivity in 721 um, has not yet gone into captivity. So Samaria is the northern kingdom. Now, this prophecy, like many of these prophecies, they're very similar in in a lot of ways. And so I want to kind of skip over the similarities tonight because we've actually read over these kinds of things so many times. And it's basically just the the pattern of um, the people sinning against the Lord, the Lord pronouncing a judgment upon them, and then the Lord promising that ultimately he will show mercy on them and, and he will restore them. And so that's kind of what you have in the book of Micah once again. And so, like I said, we've been through many of these very similar, almost identical kinds of pictures. So we don't need to belabor that point. There's three passages in Micah that I want to focus on tonight, though. But let me, let me just say this first, just as a reminder. We're studying the minor prophets. And just for those of you that maybe don't know exactly why they're called the minor prophets, they're called the minor prophets simply because of the length of their prophecies. So I remember, I think, when I was, you know, a young Christian and 
first heard major profits, minor profits, I thought, well, obviously the major ones are the more important ones. The minor ones are, you know, less important. Um, It would probably be easy to think that. And so if you've thought that, that's okay, because I thought that too. Uh, But it it's referring to the length of their prophecies. So think about it. Micah is prophesying the same time as Isaiah. Micah's prophecy takes up seven chapters. Isaiah's takes up 66 chapters. And so you can see the difference between the major and the minor there. So chapters one through three are... Again, that, that back and forth. This is what Israel's done. This is what Judah is doing. And because of this wickedness, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. And in verse 7 of chapter 3, I want to pick up there. And here it says, So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed, Indeed, they, all, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So what he's talking about here is in their sin, they're basically going about as though there was no problem with the sinful lives they were living. They're going about as though God didn't care, God wouldn't do anything about it, and basically that God should still be listening to them when they are calling out to him for whatever it might be that they're calling out to him for. But the end of verse seven says, for there is no answer from God. So God's not answering the people because of the sin. Now, the eighth verse is interesting. It says, but truly... I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. So the question is, who is now speaking? Is this Micah contrasting himself with these false teachers and priests and prophets who are crying out, but there's no response, and now he's saying that that he's the one who's full of the Spirit of the Lord? Maybe. I mean, he's the writer of the prophecy. But... There are some that think that this is a reference to the future and a reference to the Lord himself. And the hard thing sometimes about the prophecies is they, they go from the, the present moment when Micah or whoever it is is prophesying, and then suddenly you're catapulted out hundreds or maybe even thousands of years. And it's, and it's in the same paragraph. And so you're sort of like, okay, is he talking about then or is he talking about the future? And how far into the future is he talking about? Now, when it says, but I am truly full of the power by the spirit of the Lord. I mean, it could be Micah because of course the prophets were uh, empowered by the spirit of the Lord. But but they rarely use this kind of language about themselves. That's, that's why it's a bit, it's unusual and it's a bit uncertain who it is that is speaking. So he says that um, full of power by the spirit of the Lord 
and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, her prophets divine for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Now, this will happen. This will happen when the Babylonians come. But then it will happen again many, many centuries later after they've returned to the land after the Babylonian captivity. It'll happen when the Greeks come. And it will then happen when the Romans come. And it will happen again in the future when the forces of the Antichrist come. So you see, that's why it could be that the, the, the person speaking here is the Lord speaking about, it would, it would include all of the future judgments, but it could be projecting out to the final judgment that's gonna come. And the reason that I think that that's probably the case is because what happens next in chapter four. And so look what it says. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. So now we know where we're at on the, on the, the, the timetable. We know now we're in the latter days and the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established on the tops of the mountains. So read um, the first one, the mountain of the house of the Lord. You can read the kingdom of the house of the Lord shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. So what we're talking about now is something that is yet future. So you see, that's why I think that there's probably, it's probably the Lord speaking. I'm full of the power of the spirit to pronounce judgment, to... um, convict Israel of their sin. And then after that happens and after the judgment that ensues because of that, then we come to the reign of Christ. Now, this is such a great passage. And there is the exact passage is also in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter two has this exact same passage The people shall flow to it, the kingdom of of the house of the Lord. The people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is a picture of the future. And I, for one, 
and I know many of you are as well, all of you, I would imagine, aren't you so glad that this is the future? This is what the future holds. You know, I often think, I mean, you know, people who don't believe in God, people who are antagonistic and atheistic and all that, you know, they they feel so sorry for us, poor dumb Christians, you know, that we believe this stuff. And, and you know, just please don't feel sorry for me. I, I, I don't, I don't feel any need to be felt sorry for. Uh, we have hope. We, we have a real hope. What does that type of person, a person with that mentality, what do they hope in? What do they think is going to happen? What prospects for the future are there that there could possibly be a good outcome? You know, history goes in cycles. It just, you know, history repeats itself over and over and over. Not literally, obviously, but the same kinds of things happen over and over again. The human heart is still as evil as it's always been. And under the right circumstances, that will make itself clear. And that, that is what has happened right now. So when, when you think about that, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of an unbeliever and think about what's the next 10 years we have in store for us or what's the next 20 years have in store for us or whatever. I mean, I, th- I think it's pretty bleak. How do you have any hope? Who could ever turn this around? Who could ever change this? Are we, are we destined to just go into a dystopian future where the whole earth is scorched because of a nuclear holocaust or something like that? I mean, is that, is that where we're going? Well, we might kind of go there before it's all over, but the wonderful news is that that's not the final destination. The final destination is right here. We're going up to the house of the Lord and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his path. The nations will flow into Jerusalem and then it gets really good. And he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, of course, swords and spears were the ancient implements of war. And so they're going to take those implements of war and they're going to melt them down or whatever the process is going to be. And they're going to sell all of that and put the money toward agriculture. That's the point. So they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, harvesting instruments. And so there, there will no longer be uh, military budgets for nations because they won't be needed. And all of the income all of the resources will be put toward things that will bless 
and feed. There will no longer be any sort of a famine, which there are famines in various places in the world today. All of that will be a thing of the past. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they study war anymore. Neither shall they study war anymore. When we get close to war, even if it's thousands and thousands of miles away, we're suddenly awakened to the horror of it. But you know, a lot of people don't even pay any attention to what's going on. And they're going about life like there is no war. But the closer you get to war, or if you experience it especially, you know that it is the bane of human existence. It is the curse that it's been upon the world. And that has really been the history of the world. We, in in America especially, we have had this extraordinary experience of living in relative peace. Even though we've had wars, of course, most of our wars have been fought um, some other place than on our own soil, with the exception of the Civil War uh, or the Revolutionary War. But... um, but when you, when you read about war, I was listening to um, a thing the other day on uh, Genghis Khan and talking about when he, you know, conquered all of these peoples and just the, the murderous rampages that his armies would go on. And, you know, and, and this, this kind of stuff, it just happens over and over again. You read missionary biographies and one of the things you find so often is that they're in war zones trying to carry on the mission. And in some cases, they're being captured by enemy forces. They're put, being put in concentration camps. In some cases, they're being executed. Uh, in some cases, they're being made to march for hundreds of miles and, you know, practically dying in the process. And, and all of this stuff is, is related to, to war. But the good news is that there's coming a time when nations will learn war no more. They will not study war. And that when, when we think of Jesus and his title as the Prince of Peace, that's the connection. The nations will never learn war again because they're under the reign of the Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isn't that amazing? There will be no end. Never a ruffle. Never a, a scuffle. Never somebody over here causing trouble that looks like it could turn into something really bad. That, that'll never happen again. So that's what those who believe in Jesus, have to trust in, vote for. And then it says in verse four, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid 
For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken for all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So no one making them afraid. Thank you, Lord, that that's going to come. Now, the fifth chapter is interesting. The, the remainder of the fourth chapter is speaking about the, the triumph of Zion. But then again, it shifts over to conflict. And so chapter five says, now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us and they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. So this is probably a reference to the the king of Israel when they're overtaken by the Assyrians. But it goes from that going into captivity to this great prophecy that we've all heard and we've read about it because it's in Matthew chapter two. And what does it say? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So this is the, this is the great prophecy. Remember when, the, um, remember when those men followed, those wise men followed the star from the east and they came to Jerusalem and they asked this question, where is the one who is born the king of the Jews? For we've seen his star. And Herod gathered the, the priests together and he asked them the question, where is the Messiah to be born? And they said, Bethlehem, for it is written. And they quoted this passage. So, they then were still holding to the idea that a king was going to come out of Bethlehem. Now, remember, Bethlehem was the city of David. It's where David was from. But the name of the city means house of bread. House of bread. Think about what Jesus said about himself. I am the bread of life. Out of the house of bread comes the bread of life. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. So all of this would just seem so opposite of what you would expect. February, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Imperfect Disciple, Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together by Jared C. Wilson. We live in a world where even Christians are enamored by those who call themselves influencers and leaders who are striving to build their platforms. But as the world focuses its attention upon how to become influencers and leaders, Jared C. Wilson will bring you back to the place of the priority of learning to follow Jesus. 
Have you become frustrated with the promises of experienced Christian growth if you just knew the five things that would help or the next five steps to take, only to find you're still in a place of defeat? Are you ready to experience Jesus in a way that's gospel-centered? Are you ready to bring your messiness to Jesus? Well, in his book, The Imperfect Disciple, Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together, Jared C. Wilson will help you understand true discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus by the grace of God. You will find freedom from the to-do list discipleship, and you will be encouraged by the realities of what Jesus has already done. Discipleship is essential for spiritual growth and following Jesus. So if you want help demystifying discipleship so you can experience what it means to follow Jesus, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order The Imperfect Disciple, Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together by Jared C. Wilson. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we continue our series in the book of Micah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.